0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: This week, the U.S. Supreme Court begins its first term with four women on the bench, a historic moment for the representation of women in law. But the term may also be impactful for our democracy as the 6-3 conservative wing of justices seem poised to make their presence felt. And Merrimo of The Washington Post stops by to review the past term and what it says about this court. Then Tom Wolf with the Brennan Center's Democracy Program helps us preview the new term and how it could impact our democracy. That's next, but first the news from NPR.
0: Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills. Educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu.
1: Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. These days, the Supreme Court has been on Americans' minds in a way that isn't always true. Once considered a bipartisan body of justices, it is now thought of as somewhat different. Almost half of all Americans now say the Supreme Court leans conservative, which is a 20% bump since two years ago, according to the Pew Research Center. The Dobbs decision overturning Roe likely had the biggest impact on these perceptions. But Dobbs wasn't the only important ruling that occurred this past summer. Cases involving gun control and religious freedom were also decided. And later in the show, we're going to talk about the new slate of cases that the Supreme Court is taking up and highlight the most important ones. But for now, we want to review the important cases the High Court decided this summer. What were the decisions and how will they impact Americans going forward? How have Americans' perceptions of the court changed? And what might that mean for the institution moving forward? With court back in session and Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson now sitting on the bench, we thought it was the perfect time to have this conversation. And here with us to talk about all of it, it's Ann Marimo, the legal affairs reporter for The Washington Post. And welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, thanks for being here with us because there was a flurry of activity this summer uh, with the Supreme Court. And I know for many of us, Dobbs is the case name that you hear all the time. But just so that we can uh, reset this right now for those who don't know the particulars, what does Dobbs say and what does it do?
0: Right. So as you said, it really was a a blockbuster of a term uh, with a solidified conservative six to three majority uh, asserting itself and moving uh, sharply to the right, and the big one that got much of the headlines um, was the Dobbs decision, and in this case, the court was asked to uphold a ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy um, passed by the state of Mississippi and also to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, which had guaranteed a national constitutional right to abortion for the last 50 years. Um, Chief Justice John Roberts, a conservative, urged his colleagues to uphold the 15-week ban, but not to go as far as to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, he was not uh, convincing to his colleagues, and uh, by a 5-4 to four majority, the court did overturn Um, the right to abortion nationwide, and as we saw quickly, uh, many states controlled by Republican legislatures moved to restrict abortion severely. Um, Some had what were called trigger bans that went into effect right away, Um, and we're seeing that play out now throughout the country.
1: Yeah, and it's a decision, obviously, as you mentioned with those trigger bans and things, had an immediate impact on many Americans and also showed that when the conservative chief justice is not even uh, able to sway uh, people on his side that there's a significant change in the court. How did Americans generally react to Dobbs?
0: Yes, as you said, um, public opinion polls are showing approval ratings at a historic low for the court, with respondents saying that the court is too conservative and out of step uh, with the views of Americans. Uh, and we're seeing even the justices themselves over the summer speaking publicly about those approval ratings.
1: And we're going to get into kind of uh, what this means for the court moving forward. But before we do that, again, looking back on this term this summer, another a big decision uh, is the one that occurred in New York, the decision from June 23rd uh, striking down a New York law that required people to show a specific need to carry a firearm in public. Uh, what did the Supreme Court say in that case and how would that affect gun control uh, nationwide?
0: Right, so your listeners may remember uh, more than a decade ago in the landmark Keller decision, the Supreme Court for the first time said that the Second Amendment guarantees a right to own a firearm in your home for self-protection. The court went further and said for the first time that there is a constitutional right to carry a firearm in public places. Um, Now major cities around the country, New York, um, Los Angeles, Chicago have laws um, that require people to show a specific need and get a certain license that they want to carry in public Um, and those are very restrictive and means that a lot of people in those places do not have permits to carry in public. Um, This decision by the court changes that um, and makes it easier for people to get a license to carry a gun in public places. So you've already seen um, in Maryland uh, the laws have changed, in New York um, those laws are being debated now, um, but the uh, lawmakers in those places have to make it easier for people to get a, a license to carry in public.
1: And we're speaking with Anne Marimo, legal affairs reporter for The Washington Post here on Detroit Today. And Anne, we've highlighted two uh, cases that I know were very impactful this summer, but like we mentioned, there were a flurry of cases, a lot of significant decisions from your reporting and speaking with people, what are some of the decisions that you think were very impactful? We haven't mentioned that say something about the court and that listeners should know about?
0: Sure. Um the other two areas I would mention, um, the conservative majority also sharply curtailed uh, the Biden administration's power to combat climate change um, and the EPA's authority to curb um, emissions from power plants. Um, that's a, a significant case uh, affecting, you know, what the government can to, can do to ensure a healthy environment. Um, the other area is in the role of religion in public life. Um, the conservative majority has continued to shift Um, towards allowing uh, more public displays of religion. Uh, You may remember that the court sided with a football coach who had been fired for leading a prayer um, at a public high school with uh, players and members of the community uh, after a game, and the court said that no, that he had a constitutional right to do that. Um, So that was another area uh, where the court sort of strengthened the role of religion.
1: In looking at the opinions of this court uh, that happened in this past term, moving forward in the current term, uh, is there any general trend or through line that you're seeing? What do these past decisions... Yes, so um, as
0: you mentioned, um, yesterday was the first day that the new Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson joined the bench for oral argument. Um, She was a very active questioner um, participating in oral arguments. But she really doesn't change the makeup on the court Um, with the retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer. uh, You have one liberal justice leaving and another taking his place. Um, So I don't see any reason to think um, that the justices are going to sort of slow down this this march to the right um, with more conservative opinions. Um, And there are many coming up this term that will also be consequential for Americans.
1: And I think we're seeing and more of the public is seeing the uh, court more as a political body now than they did before, as maybe more of an independent (laughs) judiciary, with them flexing their muscle the way they have in this past term and moving forward. Uh, But maybe a check on that would be uh, what the legislature, the executive branch, could try to do to curtail that. Are there any ideas of things that that people are debating in terms of trying to maybe get the court more in line with what the public believes it should be doing?
0: Yes. So early on in his term, President Biden did appoint a commission to study possible Supreme Court reforms. Um, This is a a bipartisan commission of lawyers and scholars, um, and they got together and studied Um, proposals that have been out there, for instance, to expand the size of the court, or to impose term limits and get rid of life tenure for justices and to try to ensure um, that each president has the same number of nominees so that the nomination process is less political. Um, But this commission, like many before it, um, did not issue recommendations. It was more of a study. um, And as far as I know, um, those proposals have gone anywhere at this point.
1: Has anybody that you know of made any mention of things on the proposals or is there uh, think tanks or maybe in uh, different uh, 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 lawmakers that have been uh, drumming up maybe or trying to check support on some of these yes, proposals?
0: Certainly um, democratic lawmakers and outside interest groups have been pushing for it but even Biden himself I believe as a candidate um, said that he was not interested in, um, in really not in favor of expanding the size of the court. Um, I, I've read that you know proposals for term limits have had more traction, but as you know, um, the Congress may change
1: hands, so I think it's unlikely that anything will get through Congress. Right, right. And, you know, I'm kind of wondering about maybe more exotic proposals that were on there. You know, I've heard of things of maybe having a rotating panel of justices in Uh which nine fit in and things. And, you know, something like this is probably going to take a little bit more outside the box thinking, because obviously there is the concern, hey, we might have Congress now, but we might not in the future. These things seem to be a little bit more bipartisan in their makeup or maybe could have legs if they get support. What are some of the more expansive ideas you might have heard of? And again, is there any traction with those?
0: I don't see there being any traction. As you mentioned, there were some of those other proposals in this report that were studied, including sort of a rotating cast of of judges from the appeals courts. Um, I don't see that happening. Um, I think that it was very unusual for President Trump to have three nominees so quickly that could change the direction of the court so dramatically. Um, But I I do not see um, any of those reform proposals gaining traction with the current makeup of Congress.
1: Again, we're speaking with Ann Marimo, legal affairs reporter for the Washington Post here on Detroit today. And we also would like to speak with you. What do you make of the Supreme Court's recent decisions? Are you upset with the Supreme Court or do you like how it has ruled? Do you think that the institution needs to change or do you think the Supreme Court is still a partisan uh, institution or do you have an opinion? On uh ways the court functions could be challenged. Do you believe the court have do you believe the court has always been a partisan, always been a political body? Give us a call. 313 577 1019 What would you do to reform the court? What are you, what is your public opinion of the court right now, as you are a member of the public, as we all are. But as I'm speaking with you right now, and I am kind of intrigued on what you're looking forward to in this new term, this upcoming term with the court. You already mentioned you saw a Day one. What are you really looking forward to uh, in terms of this court this year?
0: Yeah, I think that some hard feelings from the last term are still um, persistent. As I mentioned, the justices have been out speaking publicly to various audiences over the summer. Um, and it was surprising how um, sort of outspoken they were with their comments. You had um, Justice Kagan criticizing uh, the court for overturning past presidents so quickly and the implications there. Um, She had this comment in which she said, um, you know, it just doesn't look like law when some new judges appointed by a new president come in and start tossing out the old stuff. Um, It was really direct. And then you had Robert sort of defending the credibility of the court um, you know, even though he himself had said um, that the abortion decision to overturn Roe was a jolt that went too far, he said it's one thing to criticize our opinions, but another um, sort of to attack the institution and its credibility. Um, so there are plenty of more decisions uh, coming up and, and even today about voting rights um, and then other big case about um, affirmative action in college admissions and whether universities can continue to use race in a limited way to make admissions decisions. So I think these ones will really test the court. Um, and be the ones
1: to watch. And those are some cases we will be getting into and unpacking a little bit later on to everyone listening here, as we've got a great guest to dive into uh, the law on those uh, cases. But before we get to calls, I do have one question for you, Anne, because you mentioned how uh, there's been more sniping, more public discussion by members of the court, by justices, which we don't see very often. No. <laughs> but, but that tells me then that the talk and the discussion and public opinion is having an effect on the court. Now, whether that means they'll try to dig in more or get more obstinate, or whether that might curtail them back forward, it does show that the justices do have ears and they do react to things that are happening, which is one of the reasons why maybe pressure from the legislature could actually have an impact on getting them back in line, like we've seen in the history if the, if the legislature, if the lawmakers are not going to institute any of these changes, what have you heard about ways they are working on or thinking about trying to get the Supreme Court back in line, if anything?
0: Yeah, I mean, our country has set up, our government, with um, separation of powers. The judicial branch is independent. Um, and there are questions about you know really what Congress could do in terms of oversight. Um, I think there would be real challenges to any efforts to insert um, Congress into the work of the courts, and the court would resist that, um, and there would be questions about, you know, whether or not that was constitutional. Are um, aware of public opinion? Um, you saw it open its doors to the public for the first time since the pandemic and take down a lot of the big fencing that was surrounding the court. Um, after the leak of the Dobbs decision, um, and they also are allowing um, live streaming of their oral arguments right. uh, again after the pandemic. So I do think they are um, you know, trying to be more open to the <laughs> public in that sense.
1: Yeah, it was, I was going to ask you about the live streaming. Do you think that was a response uh, to uh, some of the criticism or just carrying over things that happened from the pandemic? Why was this the time to allow live streaming of these uh, sessions?
0: Yeah, I also think it was a practical matter. I think they saw that it really was not problematic during the pandemic and, in fact, led to, as I'm sure you know, Justice Clarence Thomas asking more questions, um, and it was popular. Um, That was one thing that came out of the Supreme Court Commission from uh, the Biden administration, that the public really did appreciate being able to listen live. Um, even though the court is back open to the public, it's very hard to get a seat in the courtroom. If people line up, um, you know, for a big case sometimes overnight to try to get a seat. Um, So making it available and live streaming uh, really does open up access and I think
1: is popular. There's nothing I love more than sitting down with a batch of freshly made chocolate chip cookies and watching some Supreme Court opinions live streaming, I got to tell you. As we're speaking to Ann Merrimo, legal affairs reporter for The Washington Post here on Detroit Today, and we're going to speak with you. Give us a call, 313-577-1019, as we go to Abigail in Berkeley to start us off. Abigail, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Thank you for taking my call.
1: Thank you. What you got? What's your point?
0: Um, I think the legitimacy of the court was really called into question when a twice impeached, twice uh, lost the popular vote president was allowed to appoint as many justices as he did, particularly with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. I think that was a heartbreaking moment for me and many other women who Still to this day, have a lot of questions about that man and uh, whether or not it's appropriate for him to be representing us on the highest court.
1: You know, you bring up a really good point, Abigail, and thank you for your call. I was always intrigued by the questioning of a justice who I think it's fair to state. Uh, impeached himself on the bench. I mean, regardless of the uh, facts surrounding or what they were trying to say he was responsible for, he did lie about it. And he lied about that under oath, which is a really big issue. Uh, I give the question to you, and uh, in terms of the legitimacy with the twice impeached uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, nominating and getting so many people on the bench as he did, also not winning the popular vote. Uh, has there been any thought of reforms based on that, or what are you hearing based on those points from Abigail and Berkeley?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the way in which um, you know, many of the Trump justices came to, to be to hold these seats um, does you know, raise public concern, um, as you saw with Justice Ginsburg passing away and how quickly um, the Senate moved to push through uh, Justice Barrett's nomination as well. Um, you know, after the election, uh, after, after people had started voting already. Um, and so I think, you know, it just raises a lot of questions about the confirmation process, the power of Mitch McConnell to so quickly. Um, push through those judges. And I, I do see Democrats trying to take a page um, from the Trump era and quickly move through uh, traditional nominations um, at a faster pace than before and even closer to the election than before. Um, but these openings on the court only come up so often um, and so I don't know that they'll be able to, you
1: know, make a big difference there. Right, right. And again, uh, I meant perjure, when he perjured himself by uh, lying under oath. As you are listening to Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET, happy to be joined by Ann Marimo, legal affairs reporter for The Washington Post. And as the Supreme Court starts its historic term here with four women on the bench, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson being the latest to join, uh, we want to speak with you as well. What thoughts do you have about the court? What are you looking forward to in this coming term? And do you have any questions about the last term that we can uh, provide to our guest as we continue right now with Joe in Rochester? Joe, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
2: Hi. I had a couple of questions. One regarding, is there an actual process to uh, remove a justice um, that's already been appointed? And also, is there any um, accountability Um, legally or otherwise uh, for justices that have lied or misled the public in Congress when they were vetted uh, to be appointed.
1: Very good questions, Joe. I uh, leave those for you. And uh, is there a process for those two things?
0: Yes, so it rarely happens, has happened in our history. Um, I believe it's only around a dozen federal judges have ever been impeached, um, and maybe one Supreme Court justice in history. Um, The power is given to Congress to remove federal judges with life tenure, and it's done through a similar process to the president, I believe, through impeachment in the House and then conviction um, by the Senate. Um, You did hear... Uh, Senator Susan Collins, after the Roe uh, decision was overturned in Dobbs, say that she felt like she had been misled um, by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch um, during their conversations with her. That um, I have not heard that there are any um, you know, genuine steps being taken to try to um, start the impeachment process.
1: A very, very good question, Joe in Rochester. Thank you so much for giving us a call here on Detroit Today. It's kind of one of those things, and I always think about when uh, you wonder if, if, if people think they can do their job with impunity. There's always this thought, lifetime tenure for a Supreme Court justice. They'll be less beholden to any sway or uh, being manipulated in any way. But then again, if there's not any oversight for them, how do you keep a justice in check and to not do something? like uh, go back or maybe perjure themselves or uh, uh, do something that uh, would be an impeachable performance. Uh, from what I'm hearing, though, not a lot of thoughts in terms of uh, how to increase oversight. So this is the bench that we have right now. Uh, what are the people that you're talking to most looking forward to, again, in this upcoming term with the court?
0: Yeah, Nick, I was just going to mention, I mean, another area in terms of accountability. Um, you know, the justices also police themselves when it comes to recusal and conflict of interest in various cases. Um, So we saw in the last term um, that Justice Clarence Thomas did not recuse um, from a case about the January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, even though we subsequently found out that his wife, Jenny Thomas, um, had been sending texts and messages to people at the White House, um, to members of uh, legislatures around the country, calling for um, you know an investigation into the election, calling the election fraud. Um, and so there, there's nothing that could be done there to sort of force the justice to recuse from that case. So that's another area where the justices have uh, resisted oversight.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point there. And meanwhile, we've already seen Kataji Brown Jackson in her limited time recuse herself from a case involving Harvard. How about that? That's
0: right. That's right.
1: <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today, as uh, it was very helpful to get that history. And uh, we'd love to have you back on in the future. Thanks for your interest. All right. Coming up on Detroit Today, we will take a look at the future, the current slate of cases, and what we need to be looking forward to. With the guest I'm looking forward to speak with, and I know you will as well. Tom Wolf, Deputy Director with the Brenner, Brennan Center, uh, Brennan Center's Democracy Program, joins us next as we continue with Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. <laughs> is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, and I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson as we prepare for, again, the start of a historic term. With the U.S. Supreme Court, four women accompanying the five men on the bench to begin the term. First time in the history of this body, but also it occurs in the backdrop of the 6-3 supermajority held by the conservative wing. What does that mean for our democracy and what cases do we need to be paying attention to as we go forward in this term? To help us learn more about what to watch, I'm joined by Tom Wolfe. He is the deputy director with the Brennan Sinners Democracy Program, where he leads the Center's census project and other major constitutional litigation initiatives. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. So there's been a lot of buzz about how significant this term could be for the U.S. Supreme Court and the American population in general. Can you give us an idea in a general sense of what has these observers so concerned?
2: I think, as folks covered in the last segment, we saw the Supreme Court, particularly after Justice Barrett was seated, shifting wildly to the right. And unfortunately, that trend seems set to continue, or at least the threat of it uh, hovers over this term as the court has lined up a series of cases dealing with everything from voting rights to political representation to affirmative action that may give the court openings if it so chooses to push uh, policy and law even further in in rightward directions.
1: Yeah, and we were speaking again uh, earlier about voting rights being one of those significant issues. With Anne. uh while I have you now, can you tell us what is the concern? What's the case involved? What are the cases involving voting rights, and what are the concerns with those
2: cases? So today, in about a half an hour, the court's going to start hearing argument in a case called Merrill v. Milligan, which is a voting rights case coming out of Alabama. And then a little deeper in the year, we're likely to see a case called Moore v. Harper, which is a partisan gerrymandering case coming out of North Carolina that potentially raises a um, fringe but very dangerous legal theory called the Independent State Legislature Theory. Happy to unpack either of those as you're interested. I
1: would love you to unpack both of them right now. Go
2: ahead. All right, so let's take Merrill because that's the first one up. It's, as I said, happening in about a half an hour. Uh, That case concerns the Voting Rights Act and Black voters in in Alabama. So here's the basic deal uh, in that case. In Alabama, uh, the Black Belt, which stretches across the central part of the state, um, is very densely populated with Black voters. In fact, there are enough Black voters that there could be at least two congressional districts in that state that would allow those voters to elect their candidates of choice. Um, however, in Alabama, uh, they've been split up. They've basically been spread across four districts, three districts where their numbers are kept um, around 30 percent, and one district where there are way more Black voters than would be needed uh, for them to carry that district. And so their claim below is essentially that – They'd been both cracked and packed to dilute their ability to elect candidates of their choice unjustly and in violation of the Voting Rights Act. So they actually won below. Uh, There was a unanimous ruling in their favor from a panel that even included two judges appointed by Donald Trump. Uh, The state appealed. They took it up to the Supreme Court. They asked for the court to basically suspend the ruling below, which would have struck the map down for use this fall. The court agreed, and so that illegal map is being used for elections this fall, and now the question going forward is what map should be used uh, in future elections? So um, they're raising a series of challenges. uh, The state, their main challenge is basically claiming that the Voting Rights Act would require them to consider race in drawing districts. That's unconstitutional. Uh, And they are also arguing uh, with a little bit more complexity here, uh, that the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to questions about how you draw individual districts. All it does is bar what are known as uh, multi-member districts, so one district that elects multiple candidates, or at-large election systems where everyone in the state votes for every candidate. That would be a radical rewriting (laughs) Of the voting rights act and so we're hoping that the court doesn't move in that direction yeah so that's what's up today
1: yeah that'd be radical and i thought this was handled with the countless number of times the voting rights act has been challenged and we have case law on it does the court appear poised to actually go in that direction is that something that could happen
2: you know it it's possible um the the difficulty here is that um what the court is being asked to do clearly flies in the face of what the statute is meant to do. So the Voting Rights Act has existed now for um, almost 60 years. If I'm doing my math right, it's still a little early in the morning. So 1965. (laughs) I co-signed. And the idea idea was basically that various uh, various communities should have an equal opportunity to elect their candidates. And that doesn't mean that every community gets a candidate. It just means if your community is large enough... And it's, it votes together enough that if you could pull together a majority, you could get a candidate that you would like to represent you. It was specifically designed to deal with racial discrimination in voting. And so um, the whole notion of it is that race needs to be taken into account. Now, that's not the only thing that map drawers take into account. I could get into the, you know, the deep technicalities, but the basic idea is you need to show that you have a community that's large enough, that votes together enough that other communities vote against. So you can't uh, get enough crossover votes from other communities. So your community is really distinct. And you're close enough in physical space that you could draw a district that wouldn't look crazy. So you need to take a lot of things into account.
1: Yeah.
2: The court is being asked in part to say, actually, you can't take race into account when you're trying to cure racial discrimination. And now this relates to a much longer running trend in supreme court jurisprudence that relates largely to how the court interprets the 14th amendment you know initially the 14th amendment was designed to eliminate subordination
1: it